Well, you can go ahead and turn to um, Matthew 5. You know that we're on week number 3 of Climb. Uh, we're going through as best as we can um, and as in-depth as we can on a Sunday morning that this time would allow us. Uh, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5. Um, and I really challenge you guys not to just wait to see what comes forth on a Sunday morning, but to take the time to read uh, the Beatitudes, not just the Beatitudes, but the whole Sermon on the Mount, um, to read this, to, to pray through it, uh, and to take the time to study it out. There, there, you can't go wrong with studying Scripture. You guys know that, right? It, studying Scripture is never a waste of time. Uh, the last two weeks, we've kind of laid a foundation for understanding where Jesus was coming from uh, and what he was after whenever he climbed up that hillside and p- began to teach for you know, two or three hours or however long it took to teach that sermon. I guess we would never know that. Um, but one of the things I've mentioned is that I believe that when he went up that hillside to teach his disciples that he was m- literally in the physical modeling something that he was hoping to see uh, in his followers in the spiritual. Um, I want you to notice again that it says um, that his disciples followed him up the hill. They followed him. He says that uh, he went up the mountain and after that he sat down and his disciples came up to him. They followed him up the hill. And I was thinking about how that's what Jesus wants for his followers. That's what he wants. Listen, I thought about this. Uh, Jesus came from the holy hill of the Lord. Amen? He came from the mountain of God. He came from the holy hill of the Lord. He came here. He, he uh, did his work. And then it says that he returned back to heaven. He returned to the holy hill of the Lord. And I thought about how his heart's desire uh, then for his disciples that were following him and then for his disciples now is that that is the hill that we are trying to climb, not just not just a little hill outside of the Sea of Galilee, but he is wanting us to come up and follow him up the holy hill of the Lord. And uh, kind of an anchor verse for us is Psalm 24. And you're welcome to turn there if you want. If you haven't marked it yet, I encourage you to mark it. Um, Psalm 24, verse 3, 4, and 5, really. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And it goes on to say, He who has clean hands, and a pure heart who doesn't lift his soul up to idols or swear by what is false. Um, so you think about it, like, I've, like I said a couple weeks ago, I'm kind of giving a recap. His message that day and really every day after that was teaching the people how to have clean hands and a pure heart. Teaching the people how to ascend the hill of the Lord and how to keep, keep God at the center of their worship. And then remember we read, it goes on in verse 5 and he says, he who does that, who ascends the hill of the Lord, who stands in the holy place, has clean hands, pure heart, doesn't lift his soul up to idols, swear by what is false. It says that he shall receive a blessing. He shall receive a blessing. And so last week we talked about how it wasn't really a coincidence that the first words out of Jesus' mouth, once he climbed that hill, sat down and began to teach, were, blessed are. <laughs> Again, his actions his teaching, everything kind of anchors to Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Whoever can make it there shall receive a blessing. Uh, and we talked about that last week. We talked about how blessedness is uh, the abundance of joy. We talked about how it's the approval of God. We talked about how it's the assurance of faith. You're welcome to check out the podcast and get cut up, uh, caught up on that. Um, I would encourage you to because there's a flow to what we're doing. What I didn't tell you last week that I want to tell you this week is that in Latin, the word blessed is the word, uh, how do you say it? Beatus. Okay? Beatus. If you were trying to figure out how to spell it, it would be spelled beat us. 
just help me remember it. You know, I'm blessed. So you know, beat me and I'll be blessed. No. Um, be, uh, be, ah, tus. And so the word blessedness, which we're talking about, blessedness is the abundance of joy. Blessedness is the approval of God, would be the word beatitudo. Okay? Like, I'm not saying it Greek-like right now or Latin-like, but it's beatitudo. And so when you look at the next nine verses that Jesus speaks out after he climbs the hill, we know that these nine verses are called the Beatitudes. How many of you ever heard that word? Y'all know that this is the Beatitudes. Good. How many of you knew that blessed was the Latin word, or beat, whatever, beat us, was the Latin word for blessed? Some of you are thinking, oh gosh, what is he going to talk about today? Beat us and we'll be blessed. I'm not, I'm not actually going there. But what I do want to say is um, that most of us have thought that the Beatitudes were, you know, that ought to be our attitude. You know, that should be your attitude. And that should be our attitude, these things that Jesus is talking about. But it's more than that. Again, going back to a blessedness that comes from God. And we really talked about how it's a blessedness that can only be uh, fulfilled or achieved in a right relationship with Him when our relationship with Him is rock solid. What I'm going to try to do over the next three to four weeks is, um, is cover the nine Beatitudes. I, I'm trying to do it in three, but it might take four. You never know how it's going to go. Um, today I want us to look at the first three. So go ahead and make sure you're in, in Matthew 5. <clears throat> we obviously don't have time to go terribly, terribly deep in this. Um, so what I'm going to do is kind of give you a, a big picture of what Jesus is saying and then uh, maybe give some examples on how this plays out. The first one is poor in spirit. Okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, and I thought about this, and, and the Beatitudes, especially these first three, you can look at them and be like, man, it seems backwards. It seems like they're trying to communicate that something that is, is, doesn't make sense. Because shouldn't it be the rich in spirit that are blessed? You guys ever thought about that? Like, if, 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 if we've got spirit, and yes, we do, you know what I mean? <laughs> we've got spirit. How about you? Sorry, that's terrible. But we do. We have the Spirit of God. In fact, you know, you got all kinds of scriptures. uh, Like Romans 15 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all peace, with all joy in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the way of the Holy Spirit. So we've got the Spirit of God filling. It says, Be filled continually. Um, Talks about what it means to live a life uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. So so you look at this, and and shouldn't shouldn't it be that those who are rich, in spirit are the ones that are blessed. And that's how we, we look at this and we're like, man, I don't. And so we kind of skip on. And we don't take the time to say, well, what is he really saying here? Okay? It's just, that's the way you should be your attitude, you know? Um, so when we don't take, and I was thinking about this, when we don't take time to look at it in the context um, that he's teaching it based on culture and all those kinds of things, we really miss the heart of what he's trying to say. And so I want you to look at it. I want you to mark it in your Bible because I want you to take notes. If you like to take notes, you can write. Sometimes we'll draw lines out to the margin and write things. And don't ever scratch anything out. That would be terrible. But, um, and not that we're adding two. We're just making notes. I want to clarify. Poor in spirit. I want to give you just a real quick bottom line definition of what poor in spirit is. Okay? To see sin. Write that in there. To see sin. Okay, and you're thinking, okay, what? Poor in spirit to see sin? Well, let me show you what I'm talking about. First of all, when Jesus says this, uh, and, and this one and, and several others, he's using like a Hebrew 
uh, idiom. Not idiot, but idiom. Okay, if you don't know what an idiom is, an idiom is a word or a phrase that's not, taking, uh, it's not taken literally. Like when someone says um, um, they're beating around the bush. You ever heard that? That's an idiom, okay? Oh, so, so they're like, really got something and they're beating all around that bush? And what are they trying to plant something? You know, it's an idiom. What they're saying is that they're, they're delaying their answer or they're not getting to the point. Um, in, in Norway, the way that they would, an idiom that they use for not getting to the point is walking around hot porridge. So if you're in, in Norway and someone says, come on, tell me what, you're just walking around hot porridge. You've got to get, you know, walking around. There's the porridge. It's hot. I'm walking around. But you guys hear what I'm saying? Jesus is, is using kind of a figure of speech or an idiom. It's kind of like we said, man, I've just got the blues. I've got the blues. Or man, he's got a chip on his shoulder. It's like, really? Is there ruffles right there on his shoulder? You know, it's not... But if you don't get that, if you don't understand that, you just think, oh, poor in spirit, I don't get it. He's talking in circles. Let's move on. But if you take the time to dig that out a little bit and do some research, you're realizing, you realize that he's using uh, kind of a Hebrew idiom. And basically, um, the word poor kind of means to crouch or cower, someone who crouches or cower, uh, cowers. And it comes from a, a word that means to cower down. But the idiom, the way it's used, the culture would understand that to mean would be to hide oneself for fear. Okay, so blessed is someone who hides themselves for fear. Okay, and, and his Jewish followers would have been like, oh, okay, I get where he's coming from. Um, um, in fact, they would have been familiar with, because uh, you know how the Jewish people were, especially back then, they were all about the law, they were all about the prophets. They're all about living right and living righteously and seeking God's approval and all that kind of stuff. So Isaiah 66 would have been very, and you don't have to turn there, I'll give it to you. But Isaiah 66 too would have been linked with this idiom that Jesus was talking about. Isaiah 62 two says, but this is the one to whom I will look, or this is the one I will give regard to, or I will consider, to the humble and contrite in spirit. So God's saying, this is the one that I will consider. This is the one that I will pour out my favor, pour out my blessing. I will give regard to, kind of like in, in Genesis. It says that he um, had regard for Abel's offering, but he did not have regard for Cain's offering because of, of the way it you know, happened, the way it went down. But that's what he's saying here. I will have regard for, I will look upon, I will have favor to the humble and contrite in spirit. And then it goes on to say, who tremble at my word. And so there's this idea, when Jesus says this, the, the people, his audience would have immediately thought, okay, so he's, this is what he's talking about, and he's serious. And remember, they know the prophets. Most of them, you know, really, really knew this stuff. And so they would have remembered Isaiah's very own encounter that he had with the Lord. Remember that time it says he was caught up in the presence of the Lord, and he, was, he, he caught, uh, caught a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. And look what he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Some of your versions literally say destroyed or uh, undone. Some of them say, um, I was, uh, I'm finished. I'm doomed. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And he says, I live among people of unclean lips. And, he goes, and this is when he says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so I want you to write this down if you're writing things down. Being poor in spirit is to see your life in the light of God's holiness. When you're in the presence of the Lord, and you're worshiping, or when you're in the presence of the Lord by reading His Word, uh, or even in the presence of the Lord by someone who's speaking prophetically or, or, or whatever, um, there is something, you, you catch a glimpse of God, and when you catch a glimpse of God, 
and then you see yourself in comparison to God, you recognize very quickly that you're ruined. That there's not much in you that can stand up to the, the heat of His radiance. And what comes forth is this, like what He said, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. Being poor in spirit is seeing our life in the light of God's holiness. When that happens, it's when you're in the presence of the Lord like that. Remember, that's what we're talking about, going up the holy hill. Jesus is calling people up the hill, the place where his glory dwells, to stand in the holy place. Who can stand there? And whenever you get into that place, when you're diligently seeking him and experiencing him, your heart is exposed. The things that are going on, your motives, your thoughts, the the deep things in your heart are exposed. Your flesh is confronted. The things that, the actions that I do, the things that are, are less than par, according to the word, are confronted. And your sin is magnified. Now listen, it is one thing to, it is one thing to be going about life and, and living however, and someone from the church, a friend or a family member comes up to you and says, hey man, I just want to tell you that this in your life is off. This in your life is sinful you know, for, for your flesh to be confronted. That's one thing, because we can hear that, and we can be like, oh yeah, you're probably right, but you know. But when you're in the presence of the Lord, your sin is magnified. You may hear your sin, you may be confronted with your sin by a person, but when you are confronted by the Word of God or in the presence of the Lord for your sin, it's not just, oh yeah, there's this thing in my life. No, it becomes magnified. Okay, how many times have we been in the presence or, or we considered our sin and thought, I'm ruined, I'm doomed, I'm done for. Not, not until the times where we are in the, in the presence of the Lord. Um, I remember when Melissa and I were youth pastors, we were fortunate enough to go see a preview of The Passion of the Christ. You guys remember that. We were at a conference up in um, Indianapolis, I think. And uh, we got to see, it was a whole conference, but at the end of the conference they had a previewing of The Passion of the Christ. Nobody had seen it except for, you know, bigwigs, I guess. And so we were literally one of the first to see it. And so we were all looking forward to that. We knew that was coming at the end of the conference. And uh, Delirious is there, and they're leading worship. And so after the conference, here's the viewing. We watch it. And, of course, if you remember what it was like watching that for the first time, we watched it, and at the end, you know, that last scene kind of cut down. I don't even think they had the credits up at that point. So with that last scene, then it was just over. There's two or 3,000 pastors and youth pastors, worship leaders there. And it was just quiet. And all of a sudden, you just started hearing this weeping. This weeping, and you kind of started, you couldn't necessarily hear this, but you understood what was going on behind you. People were falling to their knees. I remember falling to my knees and really ended up on my face and just bawling, bawling before the Lord. And of course, Martin Smith and Delirious came back out and they're leading worship. And it was when you got, remember that song, Majesty? Majesty, Majesty. Remember that song? It had first come out, and he was singing it, and it was just this whole um, recipe for just repentance, really. And I remember being on my face, and just the scenes from the movie, and the gruesomeness of what really happened to Jesus, and it wasn't even, you can't even depict it through movies. I can remember being on my face, and all I could say, I was just saying over and over and over. I remember it was like it was yesterday. It should have been me. It should have been me. That's all I could say. It should have been me. It should have been me. It should have been me. On my face, weeping, crying. It should have been me. Because in that moment of seeing uh, the reality, the light, this depiction of really what happened to a holy God who came and humbled himself upon this earth and took that beating, took that scourging, that crucifixion for me, you realized I'm the one that deserved that. 
I know enough of God's word to know that he didn't deserve that. And in that moment, I was confronted by the Holy Spirit of my sin, and I, I couldn't contain myself. I was undone. You guys hear what I'm saying? If that's never happened to you, I'm not sure that there's, I think there's a component of your relationship with the Lord that you haven't found yet until you um, have been ruined in the presence of the Lord. And so that's really what he's talking about. And we don't like to hear that. Listen, I was thinking about this. We do not like to call sin, sin. We call it all kinds of other, other things, maybe. Uh, mainly, we just try to make excuses and, and justify you know, our, our disobedience of God's word. I was even thinking about this. I'm going to hit on something real quick. But I thought about dating couples, couples that decide they're going to live together without being married. And they're going to participate in marriage-like things. They're going to have sex. They're going to do all those things. And I thought about how they don't realize it, but that is sin. Or maybe they do realize it, but they're trying to justify. But I really, I love him. I love her. Well, that's great. But I've also heard you say before that you love God. You hear what I'm saying? I'm glad that you love her, that you love him. But do you love God? Well, but see, but we're going to, we, I mean, we plan on getting married anyway, like in you know, a couple of years, we're going to get married. Listen, that's great. But do you understand that God says that, that marriage sex is blessed, but sex outside of marriage is cursed? You look in the Word and it's like, oh. You don't understand that by, by making excuses and justifying what is called sin, according to the Word, I'm not even calling it out. This is what God's Word says, that you're entering into marriage not with a blessing, but with immediate struggle, immediate problems. Young people, listen, if you want a blessing of God upon your marriage, devote your relationship to Him from the very beginning. Let His Word expose your heart. Let His Word confront your flesh. Let His Word magnify that sin in your life so that you, can, that you can confess it and you can repent and you can walk forward with a blessing. Isn't that what He says? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that can see sin for what it is. And, and just so you understand that I'm not in any way bringing condemnation, I want to tell you what else the Word says. In 1 John one nine it says, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. It goes on to say, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want you to notice that those are plural. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And then he says, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's, there's, these sins are plural. The reason I say that is because sometimes we think that, that we, had a, we had a poor in spirit event. Listen, poor in spirit is not a one-time event. Poor in, in spirit is something that continually should be happening in our life, continually seeing our sin for what it is and addressing it, letting it, letting it um, be confessed and repenting it before the Lord so that we can continue to walk with blessing and favor. Again, sin is always kind of a hard thing to talk about. But you know, Jesus talked about it a lot. And here's why. He goes on to say the next one. Blessed are they that mourn. 
again, it's one of those you think, now, why are you, why are you blessed if you are sad? I mean, if you're mourning about something, why, why are you blessed because of that? Again, this is, this is a, a Hebrew idiom that Jesus was using. Uh, I want to give you kind of an overall view of what this means. It means, just like poor in spirit means to see sin, to mourn basically means to grieve sin. Okay, I'm giving you kind of a bottom line thing so we can understand this very simply. Poor in spirit means to see sin. Mourn means to grieve sin. And that idiom that he's using there, basically that they all would understand, oh, he's talking about uh, a, a way of living that is lamenting. And that's what it means, to mint, a lament as a way of life. In other words, the way the world is used to um, not allowing the, the world to harden our hearts or not becoming hardened or inoculated by sin to where sin just doesn't bother us that much anymore. Listen, it should bother us. Sin, sorrow, those things, it should always bother us if we are in Christ, if we are someone who is walking as someone poor in the Spirit. Sin, whether it's our own or someone else's, should always bother us. The depravity of the world should get to us. Now, we can't help it. We're in the world, um, but we're not of it, but we are in it. Okay, We can't go hide under a rock and say, I'm just not going to deal with the depravity. No, the way that we deal with it is by being grieved by it. And of course, that will motivate us to move um, in prayer and, and, and justice acts and those kinds of things. But this is what he's saying there. He's, he's saying this idea of lamenting as a way of life, to grieve sin, and really to grieve sin the way God does. You guys remember in, in Genesis 3, and I'll, I'll read it real quick. In Genesis 3, we know what happens in Genesis 3. This is when Adam and Eve fall. And you know the story, uh, verse 10. I heard the sound in the garden. Oh, he, God says, um, man, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman who you gave to me or to be with me she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And then listen to what the Lord says. He said to the woman, he turned to the woman and said, What is this you have done? Now, it wasn't like God said, well, What have you done? Like he didn't know, because God knew. Obviously, God knew. He's God. But listen, listen to the words and try to imagine the tone of voice. What have you done? To me, in those words... It depicts God being grieved by what had just happened in this perfect atmosphere with perfect people who walked daily with a perfect God, and yet they chose to disobey, and it grieved God's heart. What, what is this you have done? And then just a few chapters later, we know the story of, of Noah, and he was the righteous one. Him and his family are the only righteous one on earth, and God sent the flood. But look what it says. It says that God saw that the people on earth were wicked and he was sorry that he created them and he grieved. Now, was he really sorry that he created them? Did he have regret that he created them and all that? I guess you could just go crazy with theology. I don't know. But bottom line, it says that he was grieved over the wickedness of the people that he himself loved and created. It grieved his heart. And then if you're familiar, most of us know this scripture, but we don't know where it's at. It's in Habakkuk. It says that his eyes are too pure to behold evil that God cannot look on wrongdoing. Why? Because it grieves him. It grieves his heart. And that idea, that phrase there is the same thing going back to Cain. 
on Cain's offering that wasn't his best, it wasn't his first, it says that he had no regard, which means I can't look at that, I can't receive that, I can't accept that, because it wasn't your best, it wasn't, you hear what I'm saying? And so to grieve sin, to mourn means to grieve sin. Um, a, a prayer that I hear a lot is, Lord God, break, break my heart with the things that break yours. And when we pray that, we're usually praying that um, towards something that's justice-oriented. You know, maybe there's poor people or orphans or whatever, and, and we want to we feel worse about those things. So God, break, me, break my heart with the things that break your heart. And that's not a bad prayer, but what if we applied that prayer to sin? Lord, break my heart with the things that break yours. Because sin breaks the heart of God. I can promise you that we would be different people. Our lives would be changed. I'm going to tell a quick story. When Melissa and I lived in Dallas, I worked for an audiovisual company. It was a small company owned by this one guy that I came and worked with. And we installed lighting, sound, um, all kinds of just audiovisual stuff. And um, he came to me one day. I showed up for work, and he said, he said, man, um, next week there's a job that we're going to do, and I wanted to talk to you about it. It's like, okay. He said, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's doing the sound and lighting in a strip club. I was like, okay. He said, I know that you're a believer. He wasn't a believer. He said, I know you're a believer and, uh, or a Christian, and I, I didn't know if you would be opposed to doing that. I was like, um, I said, man, I don't know. And he said, well, he said, they don't open for several weeks, and we would basically go in, do the job, and get out. And I don't know if it was the right thing to do or not, but I said, okay, you know, as long as we're not actually going to be there when the activities start, you know. Um, and, and so we, we did the job, and we're installing the lights and sounds. But if you know anything about construction and things like that, everything's always delayed, okay? So basically, um, the day they open, we still had some work to do. There were some things that had to be done. But fortunately, they, they don't open until like 11 o'clock, which is kind of sad if you think about it. Come lunchtime, people are already, you know what I mean? And so I said, well, um, dude, we got to be out of there. He goes, yeah, let's, let's get this done. Let's work, out, uh, work to get out of there beforehand. And so short of the long, we weren't done. And so they opened. And I was like, man, this is not what I signed up for. I know, I know, let's just hurry, let's hurry. But listen, the, the panel or whatever where all the components of the basically the media brain was back in the in the dressing room of the women and so we're in and out of there they're getting dressed and it was crazy and i'm like uh, you know what i mean and i can remember being up on a ladder trying to adjust lights on certain portions of the stage and i was like so uncomfortable because this is not where i wanted to be at all and if you if you know me my past is a past of of um of a lot of sexual immorality, promiscuity, terrible. And so this really was concerning me. Now, as a believer now, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and have been walking in freedom for a while. But here I am. And so I was concerned. And so we're adjusting those lights. The um, house lights go dim and the show starts. And I'm like, oh, my word. You know, and let me just tell you, um, you can't help but not look, Okay. But I was very shocked and surprised at what happened. Not now, because the Lord is so good. But instead of being turned on, aroused, excited by what I saw, my heart broke. I was mourning. I was mourning the sin, the depravity of the world, but I was also mourning this person's sin. But even more than that, I was, 
I was driven to think, what would cause someone to be so, you know, that they would have to go up there? Now, I get it. It happens. But I was broken for the whole picture. I wasn't excited about this. I'm adjusting lights and making sure that's all, you know, all that. You know, I'm making it try to look perfect and make it visible. But in my heart, I didn't want to see it. All I really wanted to do is rush up to that stage, grab that girl by the hand and say, come here, I want to talk to you. Do you know that your worth is far greater than you think it is? You hear what I'm saying? I'm just being honest with you. I'm telling you, I was mourning sin. I was grieving sin in that moment. It was a very strange experience. But listen, it's more than just about mourning the sins of the world and and the depravity of the world. Look, it's about mourning your own personal sin. And let me tell you something else. It's about mourning the sin of the church. When you see sin in the believers in the church, it should, it should make you sick and move you to pray and to maybe even address it or do whatever. Um, and let me just say this, and you can write this down. I don't, I don't think it's up on the screen. Being poor in spirit, being poor in spirit will only be a way of life when our mourning comes from godly sorrow. Let me say it again. Being poor in spirit will only be a way of life when our mourning, when our grieving comes from godly sorrow. Look really quick at 2 Corinthians 7, 9. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. I know this isn't as lighthearted as it usually is and not as many jokes or whatever, but this is where Jesus is at, and so I can't not focus on what Jesus did focus on. Amen? 2 Corinthians 7, 9. It says, Now, He says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God, you might call that godly sorrow, produces a repentance without regret. Everybody say, without regret. Leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, you might call that worldly sorrow, produces death. Now, I want to read um, out of the NLT version, that uh, verse 9, so that you can understand what he's saying there. Um, For God can use sorrow in our life to help keep us... I'm sorry. For God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. And then it says, we will never regret that kind of sorrow. In other words, godly sorrow will lead you to repent. And you won't necessarily, you will mourn that you sinned, but you won't regret what God was able to produce because of godly sorrow. Because worldly sorrow doesn't produce repentance or change. But godly sorrow does. He says, but sorrow without repentance is the kind that results in death. Okay, so you can write this down. Godly sorrow, in other words, to grieve sin, knowing it breaks God's heart. Godly sorrow leaves us with a resolve to walk away from our sin, never to return. You guys heard that scripture? Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool that repeats his folly. I don't know if you've ever had a dog that throws up or a cat. 
My dog threw up the other day. It was gross. I'm not kidding. Every sense was on alert, really, if you think about it. You know, the first, it kind of starts with this. I don't even, it's like they're breakdancing, you know. Their head starts bobbing their mouth. It's like, I see it. That's one sense. I see what's going on here. And then you hear it. <laughs> you know? It's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and then, of course, he vomits, and then you smell it. So there that sense is, you know? But what this is saying right here, as far as the senses go, listen, to touch it and to taste it, I mean, you can't help to see it, hear it, smell it. I see my sin. I hear my sin. You know, I, I smell my sin. It's gross. Scripture talks about sin is buried in the grave according, based upon what Jesus did. So if we see our sin, it should smell like flesh to us because it's dead. It should be dead in the grave. So those senses, I get that. But for me to actually touch and taste my sin, I'm like that dog who goes back to it. It's like, okay, that was ugly in my life. I see that. I smell that. I hear that. But the last thing I'm going to do as someone who's trying to be poor in spirit is return to it and touch it and taste it and put it back in my mouth and gnaw on it again. But that's what he's saying here. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. This idea of leaving your sin. And that, in fact, we'll go on to the last one, and that's meek. And we'll do this quickly. Poor in spirit to see sin. Mourn is to grieve sin. And meek really is to leave sin. And let me show you. It's another Hebrew idiom here. Whenever he says meek, we, we translate it meek because of really how you... Um, interpret the, the idiom. But what he's saying there is he's speaking about a strength that's brought under control. When he says that word, blessed are the meek, in that language, he's basically immediately describing a horse that has been broken. This powerful horse that has all this power, can run all day long, jump fences, you know, and yet by a small bridle has been trained to control that power. What should be able to run through a wall is able to be re, um, restricted just by slight guidings. I mean, it's, it's power under control. When he says, blessed are the meek, he's basically saying, blessed are those who have power under control. A lot of people think that meekness means uh, like a passivity or a weakness or a sissy or whatever. Yeah, blessed are the sissies. Man, honestly... That's not right. <laughs> really? Do you once, once ever see Jesus act like a sissy? Ever? No. If anything, the guy's making whips and beating people up. What happens here stays here. Don't go tell people that's what. Jesus, I heard he beat people up. No. But listen, he was, he was never passive. What he was was meek. Remember what he told um, Pilate? If I wanted to, <laughs> I could call a host of angels down to kick your tail. That's the truth. You would have no authority at all if it weren't given to you. 
I mean, if Jesus wanted to, he could just went, you know, and the world explode. But he had meekness. And what I'm trying to say by that is it takes more strength. You can write this down. It takes more strength to resist sin than it does to delight in it. It takes more strength to resist sin than it does to delight in it. And you can use a lot of examples for that. I'm going to use an exa- another example from my life. When I was young, I was hot-headed, and I liked to fight. That's what I did. You know? That was one of the ways that I protected myself and all that stuff for sure. But it was also, I took pride in it. I was the guy that you didn't mess with in high school. That was me. Oh, dude, you don't want to mess with him. Believe it or not, that was me. And I took pride in it. And so when circumstances came up that I needed to prove myself, well, I'll just kick his tail. (laughs) Well, I'll just take him to the house. You know, I'll take him to his house. I'll bust his chops. You know what I mean? I don't know how many times I said that growing up. I will bust your chops. That was me. And so if you look at this thing as a meekness in levels, it took a while for me to get get over level one. Because for a while, that's what I found pride in. Even a couple years after I got saved, I was playing in a baseball game. Someone pushed me out of the baseline and busted my chops. Before they even knew what happened, their eye was going, I jumped up and punched him in the face. Then I was like, should I have done that? Remember that? (laughs) Fortunately, I wasn't in ministry yet. I was just, whatever. I was like, oh, man, I probably shouldn't have done that. But listen, it took a while for me to get past that. But you know, I eventually did. I eventually realized, you know what? I don't have anything to prove, at least in that way. So then my proving, then my lack of strength under control, my lack of weakness was in the form of um, talking about those fights, recalling those fights, comparing those fights, reliving those fights. You know how you're at the campfire or whatever, like, man, I remember when I was in high school. God, dog, I mean, I was over there, and I took him to his house. You know what I mean? (laughs) And you do whatever. You tell that story, and, man, I jump right in. Well, let me tell you my story. I remember this time there was 80,000 people that came against me. No. They're always embellished. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I hit him so hard that his, you know, foot came out of his mouth, you know. Listen, that's level two. It took a while, a long time while before I could hear conversations like that, participate in conversations like that, and keep my mouth quiet. You guys hear what I'm talking about? That's meekness. Now here's my problem, and this is what I'm striving for, level three. Not to harbor anger in my heart towards someone at all. Amen? Meekness. Power under control. Now, I have several more things to say, and we're running out of time, but let me just say this. It says the meek will inherit the earth, and we always assume that that's talking about the future. You be meek, and you, you, on, when Jesus comes and reigns and rules on the earth, you will, you will inherit that. And, and maybe it does, and probably does. But I think there's also something to this, and you can just write this down. Could it be, um, could it be that meekness is actually a key to leading people to Christ. Think about it. Think what Matthew said, or Jesus said in Matthew. Let your light shine before men. And let me just give you a paraphrase of that. Let your ability, because if you have light, 
It's only because you're reflecting His light. So let your ability to reflect God's character shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So your meekness under control, your ability to reflect God's character, believe it or not, can win people to the Lord. It's happened over and over and over. Some of you are led, have been led to the Lord because of the meekness or the godly character that you saw in someone else. Um, let me just end with this. I'll, I'll just end with this. It's not just about... Let me just give you this last statement. Meekness is a bowing of the knee to everything God works and wills in your life. It's not just, I have power over my sin, or I cannot do this, I have self-control. Listen, because there can be times where we're not meek with all kinds of things that God is working and willing in our lives. It could be circumstances. It could be something that doesn't have anything to do with sin. It has something to do with God, what God is working and, and willing in your life to accomplish things. Are we, are we going to um, submit to that? Because meekness really, a meek person is someone who submits to God. You could bottom line it that way. You know, in this, I'm going to have self-control not to act this way or that way. You guys stand with me.